I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 28, 2018. Coming up, it's true, as you might know already, doing work email after hours, or at least expecting that you should be doing work email at night, raises employees and their partners' anxiety levels. That's according to a new study from Colorado State University and other colleagues. We'll hear from CSU business management professor Samantha Conroy. And we'll hear from Monica McBride about a new report from World Wildlife Fund, uh, known to many of us still as the World Wildlife Fund, uh, a study that she co-authored. It's about the huge amounts of food we waste in the U.S. and what we can do about it. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The Helsinki Businessmen Study is one of the world's longest-running health studies. It's been tracking Finnish businessmen for 50 years. It's also been the source of a long-running scientific puzzle. Early in the study, participants were divided into an intervention group that received intensive coaching, urging them to exercise more, eat less fat, stop smoking, things like that. A control group received no special health advice. In the 1990s, epidemiologists analyzed death rates in the two groups and got a shock. Now, around 40 men in the control group had died. But in the healthy intervention group, nearly 70 had died. That's nearly twice as many deaths in the healthy intervention group compared to the control group. Today, Timo Stronberg, a Helsinki medical professor, will explain to European cardiologists why he believes businessmen in the intervention group have died more often. He suspects that being pressured to follow so-called healthy advice is stressful for some businessmen. I cannot say that lifestyle advice is dangerous. Of course I cannot. But my message is that it should be individualized and we should identify better those persons who may be vulnerable to too much stress from this advice. Stronberg says one way to reduce that stress is take longer vacations. In the Helsinki Businessman study, those who have reported taking five or more weeks of vacation a year have been less likely to die than businessmen that take three weeks of vacation or less. Now, as for what kind of long vacation is the best, Strandberg says, well, anything that you enjoy. I wouldn't enjoy going to climb Kilimanjaro like my wife did. <laughs> it would have been stressful for me, but not for her. I go to the country. We have a summer cottage and I go there, lakeside, and relax. I took a five weeks vacation every year. Timo Stromberg will present his analysis about health advice and stress, plus health and long vacations today, at the European Society of Cardiology Congress. Vacation or not, if you're bigger, you have more cells. And more cells mean, well, more cell divisions and more chances to generate cancer-causing mutations. Ditto for living longer. If you, you have more chance during more years to get cancer. And within a given species, this correlation between size and lifespan and cancer risk holds. Bigger dog breeds get more cancers, as do bigger people. 
but some species don't fit this pattern. And elephants, whose 5,500 kilogram bodies have amazingly low rates of cancer, are the biggest question mark of all. A team of scientists at the University of Chicago recently resolved this paradox. They released surprising findings in a new study. The researchers looked at the genomes of elephants and their closest living relatives, hyrax and manatees. All three carry extra non-functional copies of tumor-suppressing gene. It's called LIF3. In the elephants, one of these copies became active at some time during their evolution. This second copy has a novel function, to cause cell death when the DNA in that cell is damaged. This novel function spawned a great name for this type of gene, one that comes to life after not being functional and then killing cells. What else but a zombie gene? This new gene may have contributed to a larger body size and longer lives of elephants by enhancing their resistance to cancer. In addition to giving us cool new types of genes and explaining the low rate of cancer in elephants, this research may provide new tools for treating cancer in us. The study was published last week in the journal Cell Reports. And on the science calendar this week, are we alone? Well, this is one question that will be pondered tomorrow evening, August 29th, when Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation titled, If There Is Life on Icy Moons, How Will We Ever Know It's There? The speaker is Carly Hewitt, who is the Assistant Director of the Department of Space Studies at Southwest Research Institute. Dr. Hewitt will talk about how the more we understand the fragility of our own life support world, the harder it is to believe life could exist elsewhere. But we see that life can thrive in the harshest of Earth's environments, so maybe life could develop in non-earthly environments as well, perhaps in the liquid water oceans underneath ice surfaces on moons across our solar system. These regions have access to heat, liquid water, and the complex chemistry of all needed for life. So maybe these dark, distant, icy worlds are our best hope for finding life. In her talk, Dr. Hewitt will discuss these different worlds and the missions to explore them. Everyone is welcome to these cafe side presentations and discussions which take place at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver, close to Coors Field. The talk starts at 6.30 tomorrow evening and ends around 8 p.m. Arrive by 6 if you want to get something to eat before the talk. And if you look up in the sky tonight, you will be able to see four of the five planets that are visible to the naked eye from Earth. From west to east, they are Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. The planets are easiest to identify soon after sunset. As the sky gets darker, the brighter planets will be the first point-like objects that you will see in the sky as you look southwest to southeast. And if you wait a few hours later, you'll see the rising of the waning moon, just two days past full. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Did you start the work week yesterday feeling, well, a little anxious after the weekend? Not like you should, but in particular, 
anxious from having been emailing your boss or your colleagues, or at least anticipating that your boss would be asking for something of you electronically? And did you find that the barbecue you had with your family and friends and even reading a bedtime book to your toddler, maybe, was interrupted by the tugging of your smartphone? If so, you're not alone. And researchers are tracking you and many employees. What they're finding is alarming, if not shocking. Samantha Conroy is one of the researchers. She's an assistant professor of business management at Colorado State University. Dr. Conroy co-authored a study that's currently under review at a journal. She and her colleagues surveyed more than 600 individuals, including more than 130 couples. The main subjects were alumni of each of their universities, people who work in several industries, including government, healthcare, and technology, quite the gamut. The researcher advances work that Dr. Conroy and others had done a couple years ago. That one focused on individual employees themselves. This time, the researchers included the partners of the employees and found that no surprise, there is a spillover effect, and it's not a positive one. I interviewed Dr. Conroy a few days ago and began by asking her to describe the gist of what she and her colleagues were looking into in this new study, and here's what she said. So we were interested in, well, we've been interested for a few years in the effect of email on employee health and well-being and other outcomes for employees. And some of the research that had been done had focused more on the time people were spending on their electronic communications, mainly email. And we were interested if the pressure to monitor from organizations, so the expectations that you're available and that you will respond, would have any kind of impact maybe beyond or outside of the impact of the time you were spending on email after hours. Mm -hmm. So not related to the time nor the time of day, right? I know studies have been done on, gee, how much screen time you give right before bed, is that good or bad? This is separate from that. Yeah, absolutely. So we were interested in after hours, which we we defined pretty broadly as when you're not in your your traditional working hours. And for most people, that would be eight to five, Monday through Friday are their traditional working hours. And we were interested in the hours outside of that when you typically would be spending that time with your family or doing other personal activities during that time, sort of your non-work life. Um, and the expectations that organizations would have that you would be responding to email during that time when you're outside of work. What was the gist of it? Absolutely. So, yeah, we looked to see if these expectations were causing people to experience anxiety outside of work, this feeling really associated with needing to be on and ready for work at any given moment. Uh, And so whether those feelings of anxiety influenced their significant others and the relationship satisfaction that they had with their significant others, and then also whether it actually influenced the significant others' anxiety, and then their health and their relationship satisfaction with the partnership. And let's start with the employee or the main subject. Uh, What what kind of effects are you seeing? Yeah, so we, in our study, we included the time that was spent on electronic communication, email, um, and, and these expectations in the same model, which means that we controlled for time. So ignoring kind of the amount of time spent, the expectations alone were positively related to anxiety. So we saw an increase in anxiety when those expectations were perceived to be high. And then we saw that that was associated with lower health. And this was self-reported health um, on a scale where we asked people um, to rate their current health level. Um, but this scale has actually been correlated with a number of important objective health outcomes. We did not measure those. You mean like uh, stress, actually sort of neurophysical stress and mortality rates, that sort of thing? 
Yes, yeah, disease. the health the the health measure that we used has been correlated with some of those, like disease and um, mortality rates and stuff like that. So it sounds like if one is expecting or, or gets an email and expects that the boss or the colleague, namely the boss, I take it, expects her to answer it over the weekend yeah. or after hours, that raises the anxiety level, but not necessarily if she sees it's her choice to initiate or respond to work-related email after hours, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, we found, so the, the, the effects we found were primarily due to the expectations, not so much due to the time. And it isn't even, you know, in any given moment, it's not whether or not you've received, received an email, it's that you think you might receive one at any moment. And so you feel like you have to be ready. So maybe you're spending time with your family, but you're not 100% with your family because you're also thinking about how you need to be available to respond to these emails. Sometimes you work in a culture where the expectation is that everyone is always on and always available, regardless of, you know, the fact that they're at a soccer game or they're out to dinner or something like that. And, And in those kinds of cultures, that would be somewhere you'd see high expectations. So people feel that they should be aware anytime that their phone dings and be ready to respond. Give me a sense of the scale of stress, what you were measuring. Yeah, so we measured expectations or um, these perceptions of electronic communication expectations on a one to five scale. And we found that people reported when we asked them, you know, what do you see as the level, uh, the mean was 3.26 on a one to five scale. So mm. a little bit more than uh, just so they. I'm supposed to sometimes respond, so it was, it was on the higher end on average across the employees. Then we also measured anxiety on a one-to-five scale, so to the extent that they experienced anxiety related to these email communications, and that was 2.41 on a one-to-five scale with a, about a point of um, standard deviation, meaning that people ranged quite a bit in terms of how much the anxiety they experienced. So there's quite a bit of variance in how much anxiety people had. And so what about the partners? It strikes me as no surprise there's a bleeding effect onto partners. So that was really, to us, the most interesting part of this research was, you know, there was the question of whether these expectations actually transferred into some sort of problems for partners, any kind of spillover effects. And we did find that significant others experienced increased anxiety as well as a result of their partners' um, expectations and that this led to uh, lower relationship satisfaction with their partners and lower significant other health, uh, which is interesting because it suggests there may be family implications to these expectations. So our mediating mechanism was this anxiety, and, and the idea is that the, the employee has anxiety and that this anxiety can sort of have a contagion effect where the partner starts experiencing the anxiety as well. Um, another part of our, our theory or belief about why this may be the case is because people are going to lack presence when they're having to move in and out of roles. So in one moment, you're with your partner trying to focus on having a conversation with them, and in the next moment, you're reading emails from your boss. Maybe that brings you into a whole different schema or way of thinking. And so moving back and forth between those expectations in terms of your roles kind of reduces your ability to be present with your partner. Yeah, boy. So what's, um, you know, one or two key takeaways you would say messages you'd want to deliver to employers? So for employers, I would say, you know, our, our research suggests that while, you know, we know that there are some positives with, with email after hours, you know, that availability can be valuable for, 
companies. Um, there are clearly some downsides for employees to this constant email monitoring. So I would say, you know, for employers, I hope that they consider implementing practices or policies that help managers handle, you know, email expectations, how they manage the norms around those expectations. You know, there's a variety of potential solutions that employers could consider, um, maybe only using email communication after hours um, for very urgent issues or, or say, maybe don't use email as, as a way of managing really urgent issues. Maybe say, you're, if you're really needed, it's going to be a phone call rather than people thinking, oh, there could be something terribly important on my, on, my, on my device, communicating better with employees about expectations and, you know, managers being better role models um, about not, not emailing after hours. And what about for employees? With employees, there's always the challenge of what are the norms in your organization and how will it affect you. And that's one of the reasons we say this can be such an issue because if those expectations are there and in, you're in a relatively low power position, you may not feel like you you can stop um, checking your email. So I would say for employees, it's important to be aware of the policies and norms in your company regarding after-hours emails and pay attention to how this is affecting your home life. You know, are you fully present when you're with your partner and your family? Um, Are you taking care of yourself? Are you enjoying the time that you have away from work? And if you feel like it's an issue, maybe you can communicate with your managers about what are the actual expectations for me when it comes to email. Because often these kinds of norms are unspoken. And so people haven't actually had conversations about what the expectations are, and maybe there could be some value around having those conversations. That was Samantha Conroy. She's an assistant professor of business management at Colorado State University. Welcome back to How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. We're all guilty of it. Waste. You know, tossing out bananas, broccoli, peaches, other food that's gone bad in the fridge, or leaving it behind at a restaurant. More than one-third of all food that's produced in the United States is wasted, whether at the farm in production, at restaurants, or in our own kitchens. The conservation organization World Wildlife Fund has just released a report on this huge problem of food waste and what can be done about it. Our guest today is Monica McBride. She's the manager of Food Loss and Waste program at World Wildlife Fund, and she co-wrote the recent report. It's called No Food Left Behind. She joins us via phone from her office in Washington, D.C. Monica, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, Susan. Thank you for having me. Let me first ask, what prompted you all to write this report and now? Yeah, so as most of your listeners may know, WWF is a leading conservation organization, and most people are familiar with the work that we do to conserve habitats for a lot of our megafauna around the world, such as tigers and rhinos. But I think a lot of people don't understand how much emphasis we also have on working with the agriculture sector. Uh, Research shows that food production is responsible for about 70% of biodiversity loss globally. Meaning meaning all that land that's been converted? Correct, yeah. It's due to the expansion of agricultural lands into these native habitats. And this is happening at the same time, as you mentioned, that one out of every three calories produced globally are being wasted. So about three years ago, WWF started the Food Waste and Loss Program to start looking at how can we address this problem so that we can lead 
we can lead to less expansion into the future by utilizing everything that's already under production to its fullest. So that really prompted the research that we just released on looking at on-farm post-harvest loss in the U.S. to really understand what the size and scale of the problem is. Since right now there's not a lot of primary data available on how much is actually going to waste at that stage. Boisa, based on your findings, break it down a bit. Like where in the production consumption chain is waste the worst or the least worst even? Yeah, so one of the leading uh, studies that shows what waste looks like across the value chain was put out in 2016 by another nonprofit called Refed. And their estimates show that consumers and homes are really the biggest source of loss and waste, and that's about 43% of everything that gets wasted along the value chain, or about 27 million tons. And, and, and by consumers, report, you, mean, you mean by what we just throw out in the kitchen? It's not restaurants, it's not on the field. Correct, yeah, that's just at home. Wow. So when you, when you look at the farm aspect, that came out to be about 16% of food loss and waste, which was about 10 million tons. But that was based on very limited data sets that showed about 11% loss for fruits and 13% loss for vegetables. And what we found with our studies is that those numbers are likely an underestimate. And so this 10 million tons could be significantly more. Meaning uh, not just an underestimate universally, but particularly the loss or the waste at the farm level, which that previous study said it was 16% of the total is actually, you think, a lot larger. Yeah, that that's correct. That's what we think by our estimates, which when we went out and did quantitative studies of actually food that was left on farm that was still considered marketable, edible, um, we were seeing between 2.5% for the most efficient processing crops, and we looked at potatoes to fill that bucket, up to 56% of lettuce and romaine in particular that can be left in the field. With peaches and tomatoes, which were the other two crops that we looked at, falling in between at around 40%. So significantly higher than those estimates of the 11 to 13 percent that were used in that study. Wow. So let's take lettuce. Is it, I mean, what accounts for that up to 56 percent? Because I know when I visited farmers in Salinas Valley and elsewhere, and they're like, a ton of this that you see will never be bought by the so-called middlemen who said who sell to the retailers because it looks a little funky. You know, what, what tease it out for us. Like where, where is the waste? Yeah, so we, in addition to doing these quantitative studies, we also did qualitative interviews with the growers to really understand what some of these drivers were behind the produce that was getting left in fields. And three of the main drivers we found were that product was too ripe, so it, it would not make it to market in the one to two weeks it can take from field to grocery store. It had damage or other cosmetic defects, so it was still edible, but there may have been a small bruise or blemish at the time of harvest. And if that bruise or blemish was then shipped, it would likely be rotten by the time it got to a retailer. And then size was another big bucket. So 
the lettuce may have been too small, too large, it may have been crooked, and so that can lead to a lot of product being rejected in the field. Since they know it will be rejected once it gets to the retailer, it's not economical for them to to harvest it and send it along the chain. Boy, and among other things, it was sad to read that one of the four crops you looked at, I guess they were tomatoes, potatoes, peaches, and romaine lettuce. Here we are smack in the middle of this all-too-short peach season, but the peaches are very, not only water-intensive, but um, very inefficient and very wasteful, right? Yeah, so when we did the the qualitative and and quantitative studies, we also wanted to understand the environmental impacts of the four different crops, both in terms of production, but then also when you looked at the loss that was associated with them. And yeah, when you looked at peaches in terms of household or in terms of water use per unit, they they definitely are the most significant across the entire, across the four crops. And for more details on kind of those specific numbers, and the methodologies that we used, um, I would refer your listeners to those reports. Right, and I'll, I'll uh, link to this. the website as well, or, or on the website, I'll link to the report. Um, we just have time for one more. I'm just curious, what, what sort of takeaway message, or one or two, would you send to consumers, those of us who purchase and eat? I know there are plenty of messages for hotels and restaurants and the growers themselves, but what about for, for all of us, for listeners? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest takeaways from this study was just demand for fruits and vegetables and and the lack thereof at times. So currently only one in 10 American adults meets their daily USDA-recommended fruit and vegetable intake. And if we just start increasing demand for these fruits and vegetables, both the perfect ones that end up at the retailers, but then also some of these imperfect ones, that will really help drive the system and we are actually looking at doing another report that looks at this in particular to see how does this impact land use and other resource use can we use what's already being produced and what's currently being lost to fill an increase in demand or will that lead to more agricultural expansion so that's yet to come, but our hypothesis is that if people start at least demanding more, we can get more out of the field. Yeah, well, thank you. We'll follow up with you on that. So uh, don't be afraid of ugly or slightly deformed, not perfect-looking fruit and vegetables. Thank you so much, Monica McBride, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Monica McBride. She's a manager of food loss and waste at the World Wildlife Fund. We'll link to that No Food Left Behind report and related resources on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by me, Chip Granditz. Thanks to Shelley Schlender, Joel Parker, and Beth Bennett for headline contributions. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Steve Tibbetts. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Chip Granditz.